How many students could you see in your program? You know, and then they start talking about it. And then here's the key. You know, again, this is like a 60 minute meeting. This is a good size meeting. You're really giving them time. You say, tell me more, tell me more about it. You just keep saying, tell me more. And they're like, well, I guess we could do this. And the key here is you're passing the baton not only around their investment in the curriculum, but you're passing the baton, Daniel, around. It's time for you to start pitching the potential of this program. Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized, and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory. And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio, and we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school. So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school. Hey, Nate, welcome back. How are you doing? Mm, stellar, Daniel. How are you feeling? I'm great. And uh, as we jump into this episode, I, I have something on my mind. And that is the last few conversations we had. And again, like I said, the last time we talked, I don't know what order we're going to publish these in. But the last few conversations that we've had, that we've recorded, we have spent an awful lot of time in the hiring and back office bucket to reference some of the early episodes that we had for, for the, the podcast. But I want to go back to the marketing bucket. And I want to ask a question of you today about BMF that I think people can draw a lot of value from. And and that is, I am very curious about the time that BMF had the largest enrollment increase in, you know, three months, six months, a year. I don't know. But before I get to that, Mm. before I actually ask you the question, Mm. I want to put a little, let's say almost a disclaimer, because a lot of times in music school world, music studio world, we talk about marketing. And I've talked a ton about marketing over the last five years in Grow Your Music Studio, my business. Um, and a lot of times when the, when the topic of marketing or the marketing bucket comes up, it's about Facebook ads, SEO, mm-hmm. Google ads, sales, marketing copy. And there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But it's not my intention to just draw out a bunch of techniques today about, you know, how, you know, the, the technical elements of how BMF right. happened to have a large enrollment increase. I want to maybe dig a little bit deeper than that and ask, are there things that are beneath the surface that people could use? Are, are there things that we can talk about here that people who currently own a seven-figure music school could get value from, or those who are aspiring to own a seven-figure music school are not there yet, could draw upon. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm really open to moving beyond just the typical, the typical conversations that are had around this about do Facebook ads or here's how to do Facebook ads. Well, right. I, I really want to dig a lot deeper and look at the reasons why, because over the last 10 years in BMF, there had to have been a time that you had rapid growth at some point or another, or maybe multiple times. And I want to, I want to look a little bit deeper than, than just the usual suspects. So are you up to, are you up to this challenge, Nate? Dude, I love it because if you did get me caught in the optimizing a marketing funnel conversation, I would geek out with you. But I've got some. I think I've. I think I have some cool stories to share around uh, just what we did internally to mm. expand enrollment 
um, separate from optimizing anything like a Facebook ad or a Google funnel or any of that stuff. So yeah, yeah. Man, I'm in. Okay. So, so, so the question then, I'm just going to pose it to you is, yeah. could you tell me about the time, maybe just the high level story, no frills, no, um, you know, just the, the high level story of the time that BMF experienced the most growth or one of the times that BMF experienced the most growth that you've had in a certain period of time. What is that? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to 2018 into 2019. So essentially, um, let's talk about the spring of 2018, moving through the summer and into the enrollment season in the fall of 20, uh, sorry, spring of 2019 into 2019. So basically, uh, I'm going to take you through a spring, summer, into fall, and I'm going to actually focus the story that comes to mind is just around our mini keys in our Jamban 101 program. So that's our age four and five group class and our age six to eight. So let, I, want, I want to talk about that. So let me just even let me just even ask a question right there. So you're saying yeah. that you had an enrollment increase that was significant and it wasn't just a general increase in enrollment. It was around a specific program. Yes, we took. Okay. We, yeah. So, and, and, we and, and even for facts, it, learned. for even the factuals, like, can you tell me what was the number, what was the student number increase just for context here at the beginning of the story? What was that increase over that spring, summer, fall? How many students yeah, were totally. added? So in our mini keys program and our jam band one one program, those were in the numbers of like, we might have 30 students in mini keys and, you know, 50 or 60 students in our jam band. So each group is a group class of six students. By the time we were enroll, finished enrolling those two, I think mini keys was up to 100 students. Jam band 101 was at about 160 students. Um, and so it was a significant increase at the bottom of what we call the kind of pyramid of our program, right? Hmm. We we sort of we have lots of little little dudes, and then and then as we move up, you know, um, the musician's journey it, it changes. But we, yes. we really really front load the program. We put a lot of four to eight year olds in our program. So I'm not asking you to get out your air table and tell me like down to the exact number. But you're okay. what it sounds like you're saying is you increased by 150 to 200 students over like a over a pretty short season. Yeah, like end of 2018, I think we were at 550. End of 20, uh, I'm sorry, 2018. Yes, 2019, we were at, say, 640, 650. So about a 100, 100, 100 student increase there. Uh, and, and I'm just giving you year-end numbers. So I'm not talking about fluctuations within the season, et cetera. Sure. Um, but, but it was a significant increase within a very specific um, department of our school. Interesting. So, yeah. And so over the 10 year history of BMF, is this, was this the, the steepest growth curve that you'd ever experienced? Hmm. I would say, uh, without changing invent, without changing the size of our facility, i.e. adding more studios. In other words, just using existing inventory and then trying to maximize it. It was the most significant um, growth curve. So, okay, to, yeah. So, uh, and also, uh, and let me just give you an asterisk on this, by the way, Daniel, because it's really important. It was the some most significant improvement in financial health for the company, mm. profitability, 
because we were very focused on growing a program that we knew was more profitable, that put less pressure operationally on the school. Uh, and, and that was really important to us because it allowed us to do a whole number of other things within the school because we were increasing our profits. And in a place like Brooklyn Music Factory, my partner and I were always thinking, what, what percentage of this profit can we invest back into the school yeah. to build systems, to improve curriculum, et cetera? Okay. So uh, part of the reason why I wanted to ask this question and record it was the story that you kind of highlighted to me, gave me the highlights of. Um, so maybe now jump into the actual story of what it was that caused this group class program or programs to kind of explode in their numbers, 30 to 100. And the other one, I think you said was from 60 to 160 or 30 to 160. What, what, what caused that? You know, and I, and and I would say include like, were there any advertising methods that you did? Was there anything else involved, which I kind of wink at because I know what you're going to say there, but just give us the, the postmortem on what made this such a success. So in order for me to get to the actual people that were involved in the, in the how, I'm going to give you a little brief history into BMF. So my business partner um, was the original director of the band program. And that was everything. That was from you know, Jam Band 101 up through advanced bands, right? And she did a great job of establishing sort of the, the, whole, the whole culture around our group class program, making it a songwriting-focused program, implementing everything from drum circles to, to, to um, you know, uh, uh, games and fluency games, et cetera. So anyways, she did a great job. At some point, she and I made a very specific and intentional decision, which was to pivot her skill set and her talents into our camp program. She became the director of camp. It was a much better fit for her in terms of her lifestyle and the role she needed in the company. In addition, she was taking basically a lot of the program and our group class programs and just applying it to a specific age range in summer camps. So you need to know that because at that point in time, and it was not easy for us and not easy for her, we said it's time to replace you as the Hmm. director of band. So that's a really tough thing to do as a founder to be like, you know what, it's time to replace me in my role. I'm going to move over and do something else in this organization. Because you really have to not only hire very carefully, but then you have to be willing to let go and let that new person take on your role. So to be very clear, Daniel, this meant that like um, she used to direct the all staff meetings and then she had to be like, I no longer direct them. You direct them. Yeah. She's literally like, I mean, it's like, that's a big, that's a check your ego at the door moment to let go. So so we hired an amazing person. Jason came in and um, started with the four and five-year-olds, the mini keys, became deeply invested in the development of that curriculum and how to improve and refine that and add to it, right? And then he moved from there into the Jam Band 101, the age six to eight program. So he, was, he became um, not only the director of the band program, but he, be, he came in with a skill set that was focused on this young age group that we knew was going to be our growth area uh, over the next few years. And uh, he became deeply invested in what it meant to deliver the best possible experience to these students. Question, Did was there overlap between his hiring and working in these departments 
Did he overlap with the co-founder so that he kind of learned from her? One year transition. Okay. So she met with him. She first sat in on the department meetings. She gave him her old agendas. She gave him her formats, her systems for how she did things. She get everything from like how we throw a band party where we're doing, you know, 28 bands in an afternoon to this. So she, she gave him all the systems and she said, here it is. And then she sat in on the meetings, but she's like, so they made a co-led and then eventually she stopped mm. speaking as much. And then eventually she maybe didn't make it to every department meeting. The other thing she did was she always met with Jason one-on-one. So mm. she did a one-on-one. Was it weekly? Probably weekly it started and then it became monthly. And essentially that one-on-one was just how are you feeling? What questions do you have? What's working? What's not? And what it sounds like, this sounds very much like a topic we had a recent conversation about cross-training where the best way to build a resilient organization is to train people in other people's jobs. It's, it's an investment, um, but it, it, it protects your organization in so many ways. You can, you can move people up um, into higher levels of responsibility and you can, uh, you know, if someone leaves or more morbidly, if, if there's an accident or, you know, there's something that makes someone unavailable to do their job for a while, um, uh, you can have other organization members kind of move into their role and and take over for things. So it sounds like that's what was kind of happening with Jessica or I'm sorry, Jason and your co-founder. Yes. And so... And she was always really good with this. And she's always said like, and, and, and she, I've learned a lot from her over the years in this way. And she was like, listen, I can always tell when I haven't trained someone well. Hmm. I missed a few steps in my cross training, in my onboarding sequence. I know we're not talking about onboarding because we're going to, I want to get back to your idea of marketing and how Jason had such a, such a big impact. But you need to know this story because I think this will resonate with everybody listening who is a founder of a school or a studio, which is this. We generally know how to do one thing and one thing really, really well. The founder does? Teaching, yes. The founder does, okay. Yes, and that is message and sell the heck out of our program. We're really good at sales because generally what we're doing at first is we're just selling ourselves. We're selling our own Mm. approach to music education. Come study with Nate. Here's what you're going to get. And I can tell you all about my methods. I can tell you all about me. You know what you're getting because, I mean, right out of the gate, you're like, I either dig the way Nate approaches things or I don't. Right? So we're great at sales. And so my, my, um, my partner, my co-founder was, I mean, she was awesome at it. Like she and I did all the sales for the first handful of years, right? Um, but eventually you have to let that go as your school grows. So you're going to mm-hmm. bring in other people that are going to actually like, they're going to work the desk. They're going to start answering the phones. They're going to start to try to message as you would around your program, et cetera. So now go back to the Jason story. So Jason comes in and she does a stellar job of bringing him and empowering him in this role of band director and then eventually removing herself because that's what has to happen. You have to say, I'm going to step aside and you now own the department, right? Right. Now, what Jason then, just 
And this is going to get to that enrollment, massive enrollment. Well, I was about ready to say that. Like, so then how I can tell you're driving to something. So what caused that enrollment increase? What caused the enrollment increase is we said, Jason, it's time for you to actually put on another hat, which is it's time for you to pitch the value of this program to potential families and frankly, existing families already. Right. Mm. So she, he actually ended up becoming uh, he moved into a sales position. Now, dig this. He could have gone and spent all summer working at our summer camp, right? He could have just been an amazing summer camp uh, teacher. It would have been great, would have been awesome, but that would have been selling our whole company short because instead we said, Jason, sure, go in and you can help train a couple of, this, uh, of the group class summer camp, you know, the band teachers in summer camp. But after that, I want you, much like Jessica, who's our director of families and communication, she's the one who's sort of the director of sales, if you will. I want you to work closely with Jessica around enrolling mini keys and Jamban one-on-one families. And you're going to spend the bulk of the summer, we're going to invest in you to spend time on the phone, spend time in your email box, spend time on main stage at the camp shows at the end of every camp week, talking about mini keys, talking about jam band one-on-one and how amazing a program it is. And it's, and you can enroll into it this fall. We have 80 spots in mini keys and there's about 38 left who wants them. So he became the pitch person for those very specific programs. So I'm hearing one, you have someone that you trained really, really well. Two, you had him mentored by a co-founder. Three, you had someone that was really excited about the product and was actually probably even developing the product himself and making changes and and doing unique things that not even you or your your co-founder were doing. 100%. Then four, it sounds also as if this person was then given budget and time and investment to actually go out and do two things. One, promote this internally. Mm -hmm. So he was given time and space to promote this internally to current families. Maybe they've got a younger kid that's not enrolled yet. Maybe they're four years old. Okay. And then it sounds like, and this is where maybe I haven't quite made the connection yet. Did you have him promote externally at all for new leads? Yeah. In a couple few ways. First of all, we took Jessica, who is primarily responsible for sales. And we said, Jessica, Jason's now going to be your teammate. You guys are going to come up with a system for any inquiry that is for this specific age range and this specific product, i.e. mini keys, Jamban 101, ages four to seven or four to eight. You're going to redirect those conversations to Jason. Hmm. And you guys work out your system. And we've got all kinds of, you know, cool, sexy automation and... (sighs) CRM tools, but that does all, none of that matters. What matters initially is that you take your salesperson, you partner him or her with the person who, as you put it really well, is deeply invested in that curriculum, in the product. And you say, you guys work out a way so that that, that Jason can now message to those parents because you're going to get a lot of inquiries, right? And, and, and instead of Jessica sort of giving the like bullets as to the value of, you know, features and benefits of mini keys, Jessica would be like, how about getting on the phone with Jason? 
Jason will tell you all about the experience in the classroom, all of the different features in a nuanced way that Jessica never could. And he'll hmm. really, really share the benefits because guess what? Dude is super passionate about the benefits <laughs> of the students in that classroom. So, and I want to highlight one other thing you said, Daniel, because it was, um, you can't gloss over this, which is that you're like, oh, well, maybe they have a four-year-old that hasn't enrolled yet at BMF. That kind of internal marketing is so huge and oftentimes missed. We don't need to wait for the family to come ask. You just go ask yourself. You just go ask yourself. Yeah, 100%. I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. I hear two voices in my head right now. Got it. What do you got? One is the voice of the aspiring music school owner, or i.e. maybe they're at 100, 200 students, and they want to be at 600, 800, 1,000. And then I hear the voice of studio owners that I am working with or have worked with that are 800, 1,000, over 1,000. Okay. So there's two thoughts. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say the one I'm going to ask you about the second one for the aspiring music school owner. What we're talking about here is giving time and space for someone to do this work for you. And the common complaint I hear of the studio owner that's between 50 to 300 is they've got to do everything. They don't have time. And the way that you make that happen is you get someone else to do it for you. <laughs> can, and can I add, or with you. With you, yes, a hundred percent. It's not like I'm because that's what happened with Jason. I mean, he spent a yes. year with the co-founder. Yeah, a hundred percent. Here's where I want to ask you the question, and that is, and because we've you and I have worked together um, professionally, both with you working with me, and then us working together with other folks. Um, yeah, the voice I hear of music school owners who are already at that aspirational place. They're already approaching or over seven figures. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, I hear this. I'm so good at this that I don't trust someone else to do it as good as I do. Ooh, yes. Or, or I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can trust giving these skills to someone else. Because they're just going to take those skills and leave and build their own thing. Like if they become that powerful, mm -hmm. they actually become a threat to me. Mm, they become that, the competition. Yes. So for, for the aspiring music school owner, for the aspiring person who wants to have a large school, they can't even imagine having someone that talented working for them, or they don't know how to find that person or how to hire that person. And of course, you know, there are other resources that I've created that could get a person to that point. But for the person who's already there, that idea of, um, and I think to some degree you've already answered it, but the question I feel like they would have is how do I trust someone to do it well? Or how do I just trust someone to remain loyal to me? And I think you've already talked about that a little bit. Obviously that year that Jason spent with your co-founder, um, an awful lot of trust is built 
and mutual relationship and those sorts of things. But is there anything else that you would identify or any other nuggets of wisdom that you would give to people about empowering your staff to be your sales team or even something that I'm not talking about here? So you just captured like a couple of the fears that they're so real. I mean, I, I remember feeling exactly that. Like what happens, how can I invest so much in a teammate here in my, in my company when I know that he or she is eventually going to leave? Right. Um, I want to squash one idea though, right out of the gate. Okay. 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 There. And, and this, uh, on the, on the surface, you're going to be like, Nate, this is way too, you just, just like, this isn't real. That's not the way the economy works. But look, if you know exactly why your program does what it does, you're very precise about its purpose, and you know what makes it, I mean, you talk a lot about this, Daniel, you know what the unique selling proposition is. In other words, what is it that's so unique about you? And you don't have to look very hard. It's, I mean, it's basically looking deeply into your own soul as to what your ethos is, what's authentic to you. If you're very clear about that, there is no competition. It does not matter if Mm. someone who was in your program goes and starts her own piano studio. Her own piano studio is going to a, suffer from all the same pain points that you did as you do your piano studio. And it's, it's going to take her years to sort out everything from payroll to HR to marketing to et cetera. But her own piano studio is going to be radically different than yours because it's hers. Yeah. Even if she tries to, you know, quote, steal some of your curriculum, et cetera. So I'm, I'm only saying that at the outset because you've, Got to have the right mindset, Daniel, before you can even begin to invest in your vision. A hundred percent. And I would simply add on to this with two very brief thoughts. And one is an adage that I heard from a very popular marketing figure on social media. Mm. And he said, you can't beat what you copy. Yes. And two, I've worked with plenty of music studio owners who are smaller starting out needing help in marketing where they've even worked in a larger school, but that didn't translate to them being able to build something really successful right from the beginning because they only had a piece of the puzzle and they needed. So for instance, even in how Jason grew that program, he wasn't in charge of the lead generation. We haven't even gotten into that in this episode. And I'm not saying that Jason, you know, because he might listen to this, um, but I'm not saying that he couldn't go out and do good lead generation, but that's a separate skill that you either A, have to develop yourself or B, outsource to someone else who knows what they're doing. So yes. it, it, it's, it, and, I, and actually I do want to add a unique point to this as well. I have a key staff member myself. Mm-hmm. She is my right hand. I love her to pieces. Um, yeah. She is what makes, she's part of the reason why this podcast is even on the air she project managed this whole thing. We're not doing it. Um, And and I have have told her in our weekly one-to-ones, hey, if you ever leave or want to leave, let's do this. And we've even like laid out a plan about how that would happen. Here's the thing to your point about investment, who's going to train her replacement 
it's not going to be me. It's going to be her. And how good do I want her to be so that when it comes time for her to train someone else, she actually has the communication skills, the interpersonal skills, the leadership skills to actually help that person become an actualized project manager just as she is. Because here's the deal. When I started working with my current project manager, who's the person I'm talking about, she was a little green. And while I give her absolute props for all that she's become, there was a lot of mentoring that went on. Now she's qualified to do that. So I don't have to recreate that. So uh, just to the point, because I don't want this to be too esoteric. I really want to come to the point before we move back to, to the next part of your story, Nate, is that in investing in a, a, a staff member, the only dangerous thing is to only do it halfway. You either have to not do it at all and yeah. just plan to burn and churn, or you've really got to love, care, and invest because then that's going to pay yes. back way more than the burn and churn strategy. But what will not pay back is if you're hedging and you're somewhere in the middle and, yes. and you're like is- a little bit of investment, but not a lot. That is such a good, that is, you're all in. You're all, I remember once you gave me this great uh, audio book. Yeah, by Chris Doris. Yeah, Chris Doris. It's called All In. Yeah. I listened to it like, you know, like 18 times or something. And it was just, it's such a good, such a good comment you made there because we have no idea the potential in someone if we're not 100% committed to them. Mm-hmm. We just have no idea. We don't even have any idea of the potential in ourselves until we get 100% committed to our purpose mm-hmm. as it pertains in this case to our, our, our program, our music school. So I want to tell a story about someone who we're working with currently because she's a total badass and she and I had been working with you on this idea. Well, no, she we, we had done a call recently talking about a new singing program. She's got a seven-figure music school it's crushing. It's been around a long time. And a client of ours. Faces, yeah. Yeah. Client of ours. And she faces this challenge you're talking about that's so real, which is she's like oh, so passionate about this specific method that she's designed that is this kind of foundation of her program. Right. And she's all in on that. But yet she's got a large school that has different departments. It's, you know, got a rock band program. And she wanted to develop this singing group singing program. Right. And but she really just was like, how do I actually empower this, you know, mem- couple members of my voice department to take this thing and mm-hmm. grow this thing? So we just talked about some basic tactics, which is very simple. Like, so this is kind of peeling back the curtain on what exactly it was like working with Jason, which because there was a lot of coaching that goes into promoting someone from both a, uh, a curriculum development uh, standpoint, but also promoting them and cross-training them into basically a version of a sales role, right? They don't need to close the sale. They don't need to be the one who processes the tuition and you're like CRM and runs a credit card, but they need to be the one that shepherds the parent from the point of interest all the way to the point of convinced that they want in. Mm-hmm. And then you can hand it off, right? So we talked about a very simple version of a meeting where it was like, she gets together with these two uh, teachers that have developed a singing program. And she's like, you guys, I just want to tell you how excited I am about the program that you're developing. 
tell me, let's make a list of all the things that have worked. So this is, a, you know, an accomplishments list. And uh, this is something that she had done prior. She had, yeah. she had never actually done this version of a meeting. Oh, I before, see. But she, okay. Yeah, she came to with a question of like, I don't, I want them to run with this, but I don't exactly know what that means and how to do it because she's always been, and this will resonate for our listeners, she's always yes. been the spokesperson. Yes. Right? That, that, this is the, the way being this. Yeah. The founder salesman problem where like you are so yes. good at what you do. You just ooze charisma that you can sell anything. Yes. But, but imagining, to, why would I hand that off to someone else? This is what I was talking about 10 minutes ago. Why would I hand that off to someone else when I do it so well? Yeah, you got to step off the stage and hand the mic to somebody else. So mm -hmm. anyway, so she's, and that's that, yeah. Why would I step off? And also it's closely linked to the great point you made earlier around fear. Right. Why would I step off? And can I afford to step off? Mm. Right. Okay. So, so the meeting goes like this. Let's talk about all the accomplishments. What was so successful about this summer singing program we did? Awesome. And they, they'll, they'll, they by the way, your teachers will be like, um, they won't really share that much because no one's really that comfortable sharing accomplishments. So you got to really give yourself time. Okay, so that's a couple of cool things about the program. What are 10 other things that were amazing? What were 10 other great things about the program? What were some of the things the students said about the program that really made you feel good? What were some of the things the parents said about the program? Awesome. Then the next section of the meeting is, got it. What didn't work about the program? Hmm. And then they talk. And they're like, well, it could have been better if we had more songs like this. It would have been great if we had some more, you know, four-part arrangements for vocal breakouts, blah, blah, blah. So I'll come up with a whole list of things. By the way, people are a lot more comfortable coming up with like all the things that didn't work than they are. <laughs> that didn't work. So much easier to be negative. I completely agree. <laughs> you dig? So those are like, okay, cool. Well, what are some lessons learned then from this whole, from the summer? And that sort of links to what could be better, refinements in the curriculum. I want you guys to, by, by, the, by the way, Daniel, while we're, you know, our listeners, to just imagine Jason in this position. Yeah. Jason's onboarding as band director, and he's talking with, you know, uh, my partner about what's working and what's not working, right? Yeah. In his one-on-ones. Okay. Then from there, you, uh, this is the key. This is the key as a founder. You then say, okay, well, what's next? Notice, it's not the founder saying, here's the next idea. Handing the baton. You just, that's the moment. And having yeah. primed them by, by all this brainstorming, they're in a creative space. Yes. So what's next? And then they say, so they say, well, um, I don't know. And, and you say, no, no, really, what do you think's possible with this? How many students could you see in your program? You know, and then they start talking about it. And then here's the key, you know, again, this is like a 60 minute meeting. This is a good size meeting. You're really giving them time. And you say, tell me more, tell me more about it. You just keep saying, tell me more. And they're like, well, I guess we could do this. And the key here is you're passing the baton, not only around their investment in the curriculum, but you're passing the baton, Daniel, around. It's time for you to start pitching the potential of this program. Yeah. So notice that they're becoming the spokesperson slowly but surely for this thing. And taking ownership and identity around the success of it. Yes. So then you figure out, okay, well, where's an opportunity to now put them on the spot? 
So you gotta, you have a, you know, and that just involves that involves talent. That uh, sorry, that involves recognizing where that person's talents lie, and and even understanding your staff person, which goes back to the point of you've got to be all in on them or not. So if you know this person over here is good with the written word, and this person over here is good with speaking, mm. and they're great on the phone or on video, you use the talent stack that they possess. It's all neutral. You can use anything to to get this growth and this success. It, it involves doing this discovery process and it involves that, that talent recognition. Yes. Sounds and like then, what you're saying. Yeah. And I love that addition too. Yeah. Because not everybody is going to be really comfortable on stage, grabbing the mic and pitching to, you know, your hundred parents at the gig. Yeah. Some of them will be, some of them will be a lot more comfortable just answering the phone or cold or not cold calling, but calling those families that are interested, you know, voice students that, that, that uh, voice student inquiries. And instead, they call the parent back and say, hey, let me tell you about this great, you know, um, you know, Broadway program we're putting together, this singing mm. program or, you know, or whatever. And they're the ones calling back because they're the ones who really, really are energized by it. OK, now, so this is basically what happened with Jason. Now, did we get in there with the nuts and bolts and be like, dude, you need to learn all of our CRM. You need to learn everything around the sales funnel and the sales process and some of the stuff he was okay with doing, but really, where was he most valuable? It's as you pointed out, he was most valuable in Jason's um, um, case. He was most valuable on stage, super comfortable in front of an audience, and he was Love really it. valuable on the phone, super hmm. comfortable communicating verbally. Was he super valuable with the written? He was okay, but he would always be like, dude, I wrote way too long an email. Like, no parent's <laughs> going to read this, you know? <laughs> so, like, that was always kind of a struggle. And so we sort of try to refine that, but it didn't matter because instead we put Jason, like we, Jason would go to the camp fairs and talk about with all these, or the enrollment fairs we would do at schools. Mm. He'd be the person at the table, like talking to all the parents that are coming to ask about, um, you know, summer camp. But then at the same time, we'd of course be talking about fall enrollment at the same time. You know, he was the one who was calling back all those families like we talked about before, which with had, that had kids ages four to seven, eight. So you know, it's just like, I mean, I th maybe a good closer on this around um, the idea of a massive enrollment increase is maybe it's better to frame it, Daniel, like uh, what hidden opportunities do you currently have in your program right now that you're not tapping into? Mm. In other words, are there people that are just really, really a good option for taking on a very specific product or service that you offer that they would be very passionate about and could, as you say, find a channel that works for them to communicate it. And I think another implication to draw here, because we've been talking about the, I talked about the two voices earlier, the aspiring and the current. Yes, yes. For the aspiring, I'm thinking of another client I'm working with right now, um, who has, I think, six or eight teachers. I can't remember what it is. Mm -hmm. But even for her to take some pressure off of her, even at this stage of the game, to identify one of these people and say, how could this person, how could this person help remove some of the burden of marketing? Maybe what I need to focus on is this part, you know, the lead generation part, 
and I can tee this person up to be the spokesperson for the school. Um, again, when you have a smaller, when you have a smaller studio or a smaller school, there, there, there's not as many people to do all the jobs. And so more falls on the smaller studio owner, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because even some of the larger schools that I'm working with, I'm still surprised at some of the things that, that the owner is still retaining in terms of the stuff that they're doing. Um, uh, shocking yeah, to so, me sometimes, but yeah. you were going to say something there, Nate. Well, all I was going to say was just to uh, give another example of what that smaller studio owner could do is just look at a specific department. Let's say you have a yes. piano school. Let's say you have a piano and voice school. Just find that one A-plus a teacher that's all in and, and, you know, give her the voice increase. Yeah. Bring her into your world. Be like, I'm, I'm committed. I think you're amazing. You're going to be around for a long time and you're developing some amazing things. How about you join me in talking to families that are, you know, inquiring about our program? Just give one department away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or one age range like we did. <laughs> and, and if you're doing your marketing, well, okay, I, I have to go here. If you're doing your marketing, well, you're doing that anyway. It's shocking to me. And num- the number of smaller schools that come to work with me specifically on marketing where the owner hasn't quite gotten that down yet. So they're the aspiring one. They're the aspiring mm-hmm. seven figure school. They haven't quite gotten that down yet. They don't have the budget yet to outsource that. So they're doing it themselves. And they come to me and they say, Oh, you know, I have a real easy time talking about our guitar program and writing really great copy for the guitar program. And our leads for that are high and our conversions for that are high, but I've never taught piano or voice. And that's a real struggle. And I say, go talk to your staff. And this is like a revelation to them. And I'm not dogging anyone because there's people right now, I think who I've talked about that within the last few months. Um, So you're already doing it you're already having the first part of that conversation that you were saying earlier, Nate, where you said, okay, what's working? What's not working? They're just not coming to the part where they ask what's next. They haven't gotten to that part yet. And they could start handing that baton off. They could start doing that mentoring. They could start casting that vision. And even a larger um, music school, the owner could start casting that vision with people on their staff and have them start taking over and doing some of that that work and it's just a matter of finding the person in your school that wants to do that to own that maybe to make the extra cash on the side to be the sales person the spokesperson and it's just about that imagination and and that possibility and moving forward without fear and opening up yourself up to risk but in reality it's not a risk it's actually the dumbest thing in the world not to involve other people not to mentor other people not to invest in other people because your business is just so much more brittle if it's only you hey it's nate again you know every year at brooklyn music factory we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families and you want to know how because we ask them And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.